Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. My name is Jesse. I'm the pastor here. I have the privilege of being the pastor here. I have the privilege of serving alongside those who call KBC their home and serving particularly on the leadership team. And we're glad to have you here, especially if you're visiting with us today. Uh, we'd love to meet you after the service if you are here, um, and I'd love to meet you personally. Uh, but glad to be here, glad to be worshiping with you, our great God, uh, remembering with you, our great Savior, and then especially picking up right now in our series uh, that we started last week that we're calling Questions, uh, a series in which we're looking at six of the most prominent questions that come up in spiritual conversations. A series we began last week as we considered the question, is there a God? Today, though, we're going to turn to consider a second question, not just is there a God, but how can I have faith in God in an age of science? How can I have faith in God in an age of Science. That's our question for today, and I want to consider it through the lens of Psalm 19. So if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there, and I'm going to begin by reading it. This song composed some 3,000 years ago by, as best we can tell, a man named David. And I'll read it in its entirety. Again, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 14 this is God's word. It says this, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them, their voice goes out through all the earth and their words, the end of the world. In them, he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving its chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, in keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth 
and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider today the relationship between faith and science, my prayer is that we would leave here with a greater appreciation for both. For science and the invitation that you've given us to understand the world in which we live. And through it to understand a part of you, the one who made it but also that we would leave here with a greater appreciation for faith. Because in the end, science can only take us so far. And we are called to understand you not not only by the language of creation, but by the language of your word. Called to not only examine you and understand you and grow in our knowledge of you, but ultimately to believe in you to place our trust in you, and to walk before you in faith and faithfulness. And I pray that it would be so. In the name of Jesus, your Son, amen. Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful? without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too. Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it too? This is the quote with which Richard Dawkins, the eminent Oxford biologist and leader of the New Atheist Movement, opens his book the God Delusion, a a quote he takes from a famous sci-fi novel from one of his good friends, Douglas Adams, uh, his novel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Isn't it enough to see that a garden is beautiful without having to believe that there are fairies at the bottom of it, too? Yet Dawkins sets out in his book to not only write off garden fairies, but to write off the gardener. To drive what he considers the last scientific nail into the coffin of God. And he takes as his starting point naturalistic evolution. The the theoretical process by which life developed from its simplest form into the biological diversity we see today. A process driven along in Dawkins' understanding by natural selection, where the fittest survive and the survivors grow fit. Such that from the single-celled organisms with which life began to the incredible complexity represented in our own race, Dawkins declares that we no longer need God to explain the origin of species. And more broadly, that science continues to close the gaps and leaves no room for the God that was once needed to fill them. So Dawkins can say elsewhere that faith is now the great cop-out 
the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence, that faith is the belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. The problem is, Dawkins has apparently failed to grapple with the very evidence he draws attention to. Take, for instance, his belief, and I use that word intentionally here, his belief that the biological complexity and biological diversity we see today is in fact a byproduct of chance and natural selection operating over the supposed 13.8 billion year history of our universe. What's often been called the monkey theorem because it is like expecting a group of cosmic monkeys representing those blind forces of, again, chance and natural selection. It's like expecting a group of monkeys to, to bang away at a keyboard and come up with a Shakespearean sonnet. The monkey theorem. Now, I know for some of you, actually, you say, isn't that the polemic against evolutionary biology? Isn't that the, 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 the polemic against naturalistic evolution? No, actually, Dawkins takes um, quite a bit of solace in the monkey theorem because at least there's a chance. At least there's a chance, there's a, prob a, a possibility that, that, that over this many years of, of, our, of our universe's history that, that, that just chance and natural selection like a group of monkeys could come up, possibly could come up with a Shakespearean sonnet at the end of it. Leaves open just enough opportunity for nature to do its job. Well, the Israeli physicist Gerald Schroeder has addressed this notion, the monkey theorem, in a debate in 2004 at New York University, a debate actually that was set up to be against, at the time, the, the one who was named the world's most notorious atheist, a guy by the name of Anthony Flew, a guy who, at the end of Schroeder's argument, said, I think you're right. I think... You're right. The monkey theorem just doesn't work. Well, Schroeder argued against this, that, that, that this notion that given enough time, a group of cosmic monkeys banging away on a keyboard could eventually come up with the Shakespearean sonnet, sonnet that represents our genetic code. And Schroeder starts by referring in that debate to an actual experiment that was conducted in Great Britain was conducted to this end, where a, a computer was in fact placed in a cage with six monkeys for the span of a month. Span of a month at the end of which they had typed 50 pages of material. Those 50 pages, however, didn't contain at that point, at the end of that month, a single word even though the shortest word in the English language is one letter long. A single A or an I with two spaces on either side. But getting that single word out of a 30-character keyboard, a, a 1 in 27,000 chance, two spaces and a letter in between, 
is incomparably easier, Schroeder argued, compared to getting a 14-line Shakespearean sonnet for which there are not enough particles, protons, electrons, neutrons in the observable universe, 10 with 80 zeros after it. There are not enough particles in the observable universe to write down all the trials that would be needed to come up by chance with that sonnet. You'd still be off by a factor of 10 to the 600th power. 10 with 600 zeros following it. Schroeder says, forget the monkeys. He says, if you filled the universe with microchips, one gram each in weight, each able like a cosmic slot machine to produce a million sonnet-length trials a second, and ran each continuously for that 13.8 billion-year history, we'd still be waiting to hit the jackpot to that Shakespearean sonnet today. Makes you wonder how long it would have taken Shakespeare. <laughs> A few moments of artistic genius to come up with chance and natural selection doesn't even have a chance to come up with. And yet, even the illustration doesn't begin to grapple with the astronomically more improbable feat of chance and necessity coming up with life's genetic code. It's extremely complicated, a tremendously more complicated code than a Shakespearean sonnet, let alone the philosophically impossible feat of two impersonal forces being able to explain the, the origin of life, or the origin of the universe, for that matter. After all, at least with the illustration, you start with a group of monkeys and a keyboard. But with a, within a naturalistic worldview, you have no such luxury. There are no monkeys. There is no keyboard. No, faith is not, as Dawkins assumes, belief in spite of the evidence or belief because of the lack of evidence, unless you're Dawkins himself. No, faith is a response, at least as it's been lived out biblically by those who've understood it most. Faith is a response to the evidence. It's following the evidence wherever it leads. And science, science merely puts the evidence front and center. It's merely a desire and a willingness to deal with the evidence as it's presented. So that the question isn't so much, how can I have faith in God in an age of science, as much as how can I not? So that if we're being intellectually honest, you have to eventually ask yourself, like Francis Collins asked, the director of the Human Genome Project, probably the greatest scientific endeavor of our time. 
You have to ask like Francis Collins asked. You have to ask like he did early on in his career. Do I consider myself a scientist? Does a scientist draw conclusions without considering the data? And yet, he says, reflecting on the atheistic worldview he inherited from his parents, he says, there I found myself with a combination of willful blindness and something that could only be described as arrogance, having avoided any serious consideration that God might be a real possibility. Because the more we come to understand the world in which we live, the more it seems to suggest that it was made by an infinitely powerful, strikingly intelligent, altogether personal being. And the gaps that are closing, the gaps that science is closing, is not, is not doing away with the, the God of the gaps that some have assumed only fit there. In fact, at least as I read what's going on in both the philosophical and scientific fields of, of both America and in the UK and now spreading into to mainline Europe, at least as I read it, it's not getting rid of the God who filled those gaps. It's getting rid of the gaps that are the only place left for atheists to hide. That's why Francis Collins, looking at the human genome, a, a, a code, again, three billion letters long. Or why others looking at the laws that, that govern our universe speak so freely of discovering the language of God. Because again, faith is not a forced belief. It shouldn't be a forced belief belief in the absence of evidence or, or against the evidence. It's being forced into belief as a result of the presence of evidence. And here I want to jump into this psalm because the fact that we believe in a God who, who wrote the genetic code and wrote the laws that govern our world as well as his word preserved for us in the pages of the Bible and incarnated in the person of his son suggests that with David, as we engage this question and engage those asking the question, that with David we ought to first promote science and second, uphold faith. This is what I want to just look at briefly. How do we engage the question and engage the one asking the question? That as we do, we ought to be those who, who believe in a God who wrote the genetic code and wrote the laws that govern our universe and also wrote the, the, the Bible in which, in which we, we, we so de, are so dependent and, and, and wrote into his son, his, his incarnate word, right? I want to suggest that as those who believe in God, we ought to first promote science and second, uphold faith. First, that we ought to promote science, that we ought to be science's biggest fan. And particularly the advancement of science, because as we come to better understand our world, there is a sense in which we will better understand the one who made it. 
Isn't that an amazing fact, an incredibly freeing fact for those who, who have, in the public square at least, been presented as those being chased out of it by science? That the more we come to understand this world, in fact, we're coming to understand the God who made it. And this comes from what David says at the beginning of this psalm. When he, he says in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. Hear the language? It's the language of communication. That God communicates through creation, declaring and proclaiming, pouring out speech and revealing knowledge. And it only goes on from there. David says, for there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice, David says, goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. God communicates through creation. But notice, it's communication about what? A declaration about what? First and foremost, about the glory of God. So that science, this desire and willingness to deal with the evidence is just our attempt to listen up. To, to tune our ears, or should be our attempt to tune our ears to what God is saying. Because while the world isn't stamped on the bottom with made by God, like a toy that says made in China, we live, as the Cambridge physicist John Polkinghorne says, we live in a world whose physical fabric is endowed with transparent, rational beauty. At one level, all throughout the, the vast cosmos itself, Polkinghorne says, and at another, in humanity, the means by which that universe has become marvelously self-aware. We who Pascal said are superior to the stars because we alone know them and ourselves. And the sun is just one example of that, as David points out, a sun which rises in the east, sets in the west, day after day, night after night, that sustains life and makes life possible because it obeys the, the commands of its maker. As Genesis 1 says, that it was set there to govern the day and to mark out the seasons, just as the moon was set to govern the night. And the advancement of science only further establishes this fact, that the origin and existence of our universe, not unlike the origin and existence of life afterwards, was the greatest billiard shot of all time, meticulously set in motion, carried in motion, so that in the corner of a relatively minor arm of a relatively out-of-the-way galaxy, creatures would someday stand in awe of creation and come to the staggering truth that they and their fellow creatures we're not the ones who created it. So as those who believe in a God who, who wrote this world and wrote our race into existence, 
we ought to first promote science. But on account of where science leads and all the questions science raises that science itself cannot answer because of the limitations of science, we also ought to, with David, second, uphold faith. A faith, like we've said, that responds to science, but also a faith that responds to the one to whom science points. A faith that follows the evidence where it leads, but then also seeks to respond to the one the evidence leads to. It's like when Catherine and I were dating and used to write letters to one another. How absurd it would have been to pour over the letters only to neglect the person once we got together. It's like having a, a, a treasure map that you so cherish but then fail to cherish the treasure when you find it. And this is really what the second half of Psalm 19 is all about. When David shifts his attention from the laws by which God governs nature to the laws by which God governs his people. That those made in God's image would not only find life under the laws of nature, but by faith find true life under the moral laws of his word. And there's a, a sense in which these take precedence for David. Not because they in any way abolish the laws of nature, but because the moral laws of God's word, how we act, how we are to live before him, even in our fallenness, even in our sinfulness, by grace through faith, as it always has been since we first fell. There's a sense in which these moral laws take precedence because the moral laws of God's word, in some sense, fulfill the laws of this world. The laws of nature. You see, the laws of nature make life possible, right? They make life possible. But now David says in verse 7, it's the law of the Lord that is perfect, reviving the soul, the testimony of the Lord that is sure, making wise the simple, the precepts of the Lord that are right, the commandment of the Lord that is pure, the, the fear of the Lord that is clean, he says, and the rules of the Lord that are true. So he says, more to be desired are they than gold, much, even much, fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. And the point is, if you want to live, you must live under the laws by which God governs nature. You can't escape that. You go jump out a window, see if it works. You must live by the law of gravity. You must live by the law of, of thermodynamics. But if you want more than life and want to know what life is all about, you must live under the laws by which God governs his people. The laws of grace and faith. And ultimately, the law of Christ. You must finally face the fact that Francis Collins faced when he was wrenched from that atheistic worldview with which he started. That living in a world all the evidence that it was created by someone else, 
you are ultimately answerable to someone other than yourself. So as someone who believes in God, if this is where you're at, who, who has a God who has revealed himself in the creation of this world and revealed himself to an even greater extent in the writing of his word, and most particularly in the sending of his son, the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to both promote science, be science's biggest fan and uphold faith. But let me just ask quickly, because this is a question we come up against often in our scientific age. What do you do when science and faith seem to disagree? Right? When the evidence seems to say certain things about our world and about the one who made it. But then when you turn to the one who made it, his word, trying to be responsible, trying to respond in faith, when you turn to his word, it seems to suggest something very different. And I am going to avoid the particulars here. You want to talk, we can talk offline. But what do you do when the two disagree? And here, let me suggest, let me just suggest that while promoting science and upholding faith, you can assume in those moments when the two seem to disagree that you are having what my dad would call a personnel issue. Dad used to call it a personnel issue. Dad, I can't find my shoes. Sounds like a personnel issue. Dad, I'm having trouble at school. Sounds like a personnel issue. Dad, my girlfriend broke up with me. Sounds like a personnel issue. (laughs) Because as we're trying to make sense of what God wrote into the fabric of this world and wrote into the fabric of his word, I can assure you that the author isn't the problem. The author isn't the problem. It's a personnel issue, and it's on our side of the equation. Not unlike when Galileo took up the cause for the Copernican Revolution and became the leading spokesman of a heliocentric model of the universe that, 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 that we revolve around the sun, not the other way around but ran up against all sorts of opposition, not the least of which came from the Roman Catholic Church, a church that found support for its geocentric preferences, as you might expect, in the Bible. Turns out, though, that the church had a personnel issue, was defending a geocentric model of the universe, Not so much because that was endorsed in Scripture, but because it aligned with the geocentric philosophy of their patron saint, Aristotle. And similar today, the discrepancies between faith and science are rarely issues with the evidence. And just say that again, 
the, the, the issues today, the discrepancies between faith and science are rarely issues when you dig in, are rarely issues with the evidence. Unless for some reason it's been tampered with. But rather, more often, the discrepancies are almost always issues with the interpretation, which, always, which almost always means it's an issue with the interpreters. So when you find discrepancies between faith and science, let me encourage you, don't put one above the other. There is a sense, redemptively, in which, in which the Bible takes priority. It tells a story that, that, that the, the scientific evidence of our world doesn't tell. But there is a sense in which the, the, the scientific evidence of the world, written there by that same God, takes precedence in other ways. So don't pit the one against the other. When you find discrepancies between faith and science, between dealing with the evidence and following it to the one to whom it leads, you can likewise assume it's a personnel issue. Maybe not your personnel issue, but it's somebody's personnel issue. It's a personnel issue somewhere on our side of the equation. And whether because we've misinterpreted Scripture, which we are liable to do, or misinterpreted the evidence of scientific study, which we often do. We can continue to promote science and uphold faith while we walk humbly with our God. While we walk humbly with our God. Which is actually where David ends up in this psalm, isn't it? after perceiving the glory of God in the world and the perfection of God in his word, that it leads him to declare in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. More likely, presumptuous sinners. Let them not have dominion over me. But let me draw your attention, especially the end of verse 13, where David says this, Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Interesting term, right? Great transgression. Many think it should be translated with a definite article in front of it, better translated the great transgression. Because the great transgression he's almost certainly referring to here is it's almost certainly the great transgression of the garden. Where Adam and Eve, far from writing off fairies, first wrote off the gardener. After they had perceived the glories of God in the heavens, Genesis 1, and received God's word for themselves, Genesis 2 but finally burnt up the tree of life at the altar of the tree of their presumptuous knowledge of good and evil. A history David seems very much to be reflecting on and very much praying 
that he would be kept from. And I pray likewise that it would be so with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray then with David. being enamored with the glories of the heavens, glories that belong to you, and entranced with the perfections of your word, perfections that belong to you. We pray with David that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts stoked by a science that leads to a humble faith and faithfulness before you that they would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. for joining us. For more information about our church, please visit our church's website at kishbible.org. That's K-I-S-H-Bible dot O-R-G.